this is Donald Copeland, assistant men's basketball coach at Seton Hall. You're listening to Left Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around it in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pound from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California. He is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997. And we are Left Coast Pirates. Welcome to this week's edition of Left Coast Pirates. It is a special Friday night edition on March 25th, 2021. Mike, it is the end of an era. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess I guess you could say that. I, you kind of caught me off guard there. I thought you were going to give me a little more depth with your opening intro. Uh, it, it's it, I can't believe it's been twelve years. How about that? It's everything has happened so fast. It feels like a whirlwind. We got punched in the face in the NCAA tournament, and before you blink, we're dealing with the fallout of Kevin Willard heading to Maryland. I just I, it's kind of surreal. Or I don't even know if surreal is the right word, right? Well, what is the right way to describe it? What, what's the right way to describe the episode that we're going to do tonight? You know, Mike, I look at this and I'm, I'm calling it Willard the Requiem here because it's just a remembrance. And, you know, I was getting quite sick of all the Willard things that were being thrown out there on social media. But I did read an article and it was about the biggest games in, in Kevin Willard's career at Seton Hall. And I realized something. Mike, they listed Kevin Willard's first win for the Pirates against Cornell in 2010 at the Rock. I was at that game. I had come into town for some special event. And I went to the game with a couple of buddies. Mike, I started the winning ways with Kevin Willard, and I ended with the losing days of Kevin Willard. How do you like that for full circle? I, I, I just, uh, Requiem? Can, can you give me some more creativity? I'm not saying I got anything here, because I'm, I'm still torn. Are we reflecting already on Kevin Willard's tenure here? Or are we kind of encapsulating it? Or are we glorifying it? I'm kind of still to how I want to evaluate it. There are times where I'm a supporter of Kevin Willard, and some of the things he's accomplished and clearly based on the way that we do the show with the blue tinted glasses and the sour grapes and gripes, we've given Kevin his fair share of criticism. And at this point, everyone just wants to kind of crown his achievement and say a huge thank you because of getting us out of the Bobby Gonzalez days. And absolutely, he's going to get credit for all that. But I, I still would like to take a step back in today's episode and really, like you said, encapsulate and take a deeper look as to what the whole body of work was so we can evaluate it today and then see if that changes my perspective five to 10 years from now. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought it up that way, Mike, because there's this uh, opinion out there 
that we're anti-Willard, and we're certainly not. I like Coach Willard. I was a fan, but, you know, I always thought of this podcast as a vehicle to treat Seton Hall the way I think it should be treated. It is a big-time Big East program, and I think you need to be critical about this. I mean, the man was getting paid close to $2.5 million to coach a basketball team. I mean, if he can't take two guys from San Diego, giving them a little criticism, then you know what? He's in the wrong profession, especially now heading down to College Park where they think they need to win a national title every year. If he thought we were bad, oh, he's in for a rude awakening when he gets down there. But I like this, Mike. I think we should look at Kevin's career fair and balanced. So why don't we try to do that? I'm not going to call it sour grapes and grapes. I just, like you said, I think we take a specific aspect of his career, a certain you know topic that needs to be evaluated. We, we list out all the accolades and then we give the, 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 the other side of the coin and just kind of, like I said, we'll, we'll list out all the good, we'll debrief. Then we go ahead, we give the other side of that coin and then you give me your thoughts. I'm not saying that we're giving them a report card. One doesn't outweigh the other. Just kind of putting all the facts out there. And at the end of the podcast, or when we're done wrapping up Kevin Willard, we can kind of give a summation as to kind of how you feel. It all kind of now just lays out when you have all the facts presented in front of you. So, all right, let, let, let's do this. The first thing that I wrote down that I want to talk about, just kind of dive into all the wins and losses, all the accolades, because there, there were a lot. I mean, we talk about the Bobby Gonzalez days. And there was no NCAA tournament. There was no competing for Big East tournament titles. We had relevant games on the big stage, and that gets highlighted by what he accomplished in this section. So I'll, I'll give you a couple, and then you can throw the rest back, back at the audience here. So I got him down for second all-time in wins in Seton Hall history, 225 behind Honey Russell at 294. He is now the all-time leader in Seton Hall history, in terms of Big East wins with 105. And he has the third highest career winning percentage at a 583 clip. And since 2015, 2016, he's 144 and 80. That's a 642 clip. Additionally, he has made that magic 20 win mark eight times in the 12 seasons that he coached at Seton Hall. And let's talk titles because titles are the, what really means something here. He's got two. He's got the Big East Tournament title in 2016 with, with that wonderful Isaiah Whitehead team. And also, he was co-Big East champ, actually tri-Big East champs in 2019 and 20. He won Big East Co-Coach of the Year. Couldn't win it on his own, could he, though? But in 2015 and 16, and six of his 12 seasons... He got the team to be ranked in the top 25. It's a good resume, right? Oh, it's That's a, a good resume. You know, it's a really good resume, especially when you consider where he started. I mean, it was really at the bottom at that point. And he took them and he changed the culture. He really did. I, forget about culture. I haven't even got there yet. I'm just saying the raw numbers of wins, accomplishments. This is a solid resume. Do you think that this needed to be resonated to the Maryland fan base or should Kevin Willard's resume kind of be known throughout the national landscape? Or do we just kind of know it locally within the Big East, you know, Seton Hall world 
of college basketball. I think we hang on to that question, Mike. I mean, this is a nice resume when it comes to Seton Hall. Let's hold on to that Maryland thought. Let's wait to that. But you know what? With the good, there's always bad with Kevin Willard. I mean, you look at the 218 career conference games, He's only 105 and 113, which is only good for a 481 percentage there. Outside of of winning or being a try Big East title, he's never finished better than third place. I mean, th- there's a lot of things that you could look at his winning ways and say, mm, nice, but not thrilling. Speaking of the regular season title that they split three ways, I mean, people remember it, though, with it in their grasp of being able to hold it outright. I mean, you're there on senior night, home against Villanova, packed house. What a culminating victory that would have been to put the cherry on top of the season, and they missed out on that opportunity, and then Creighton stuck it to them the following game at their place. And even though it still was a three-way tie, they still get to hang a banner for that effort. It just kind of left a sour taste in some people's mouths. So I get it. We're kind of, we're going to look back at that 10 years later, 20 years later and say, hey, regular season champs, co-regular season champs, whatever you want to call it. And we're not going to dissect it like this to the extent that we are right now. But in that moment, it didn't leave people feeling the right way that they wanted to feel about that title. Then you also have... You know, all the times that they finished in the top 25 or earned an opportunity to be in the top 25, six out of those 12 seasons. But, Tom, they only finished in the top 25 to end the regular season twice. And when they were a top 25 team, their record wasn't dominant. They didn't sit there and pound their chest and be like, come get me. I am the hunted now, right? They were 37 and 24 while ranked in the top 25. And they couldn't really sustain it outside of two seasons, the 2017-18 season and the 2019-20 season. Every other time that they got in, it was kind of like a blip on the radar. A week here, two weeks there, and then they'd be bounced out again. And, you know, if memory serves me, every time we got bounced out of the top 25, we had serious opportunities to move up. I mean, it was just like we were just sitting there going, ah, if we got that win, we could have went up further. And, you know, success just breeds success. So, yes, it was disappointing. But in the big picture, Mike, there is a lot of positivity here. Kevin did a good job of turning around a team who was down on its luck and made it into a regular winning program well and because of that when you're a winning team and you play other good opponents now you have big games and big games allow for big performances and when you win those games when your team is relevant now you put yourself on the map or you have a chance to try to vault your program to the next level and they definitely did that throughout his tenure he had 26 quad one wins since the 2018 2019 campaign And that is actually tied for 12th most nationally. He had 28 wins versus the top 25, 14 wins versus the top 10. And they beat Nova as a top 10 team four times, twice while they were ranked as high as third in the nation. And then four of those top 10 wins also came in non-conference play, which allows you to pound your chest once again on that national spotlight you know, in those Thanksgiving tournaments, you know, in those marquee home games at the rock. And they did, they knocked off 
Texas. They knocked off Maryland. They won at MSG against Kentucky. They had the big win this year to open the season at Michigan. Big wins that kind of put them on the map in terms of the national spotlight. But his teams are also known for rallying down the stretch to punch their ticket to the NCAA tournament in most seasons. I mean, it be, kind of became almost a annual experience. I mean, think about it. Go back to the 2016 season. Five out of six, knocking off number five Xavier at the Rock to really kind of cement their position in the NCAA tournament. The following year, they win four in a row, and they win at number 13 Butler. Remember that Miles Powell shot when oh, no one wanted to shoot the three? That was beautiful. They had a shot of Miles shooting the ball from down low with the light coming down out of Hankel. It was a good – it was a beautiful picture. And they had that, like, the arm waving and stuff like that. Oh, it, was, it was great. Four out of five and only a one-point loss to Nova in OT – when they were ranked fourth in the country in 2018. How could anybody forget the 2019 year? You got the miracle at the rock, knocking off number 16 Marquette and number 23 Villanova to get back to 500 in conference play and once again, cement their position in the tournament. And then this past year, five in a row with wins at Xavier and at Creighton. I mean, as much as we want to pick on the January swoon, and I know we're going to get there, These were gritty, dig down, back up against the wall, come out fighting every time over and over again. It kind of became a signature of their program. And speaking of signature, he did actually get them an NCAA tournament win by knocking off NC State. Believe it or not, that was their first tournament win dating all the way back to 2006. I I found it funny. You know, you mentioned the 28th. Top 25 victories for Seton Hall during that period. Someone that's a a Maryland fan, I can't remember who, mentioned, hey, let's pump the brakes a little bit because Kevin Willard's actual record against top 25 teams during that period is 28-57. Not exactly a stellar, you know, record by any means. Additionally, He's 20-32 and 32 versus top 25 teams since the Isaiah victory-laden team that year. I, so, I mean, again, these are not good numbers in the big picture, I think. These are not dominant numbers. Doesn't that jump off the page? Like, you have a top 25 caliber team in all those years since that Whitehead collection that made the NCAA tournament, and you have a 38% winning clip against teams that are in the top 25 where you're going to go toe to toe. That means you win one out of every three in those marquee matchups. To me, that feels like you're kind of falling short when you had the firepower. I'll give him the pass for the first five years, but when he's had the better teams, I would expect that that number to be at least closer to 500. No, no, no? doubt. No doubt at all. And again, before you start banging a drum about how well we did against Nova and how everybody likes to say, oh, we're the, Nova's big rival, we're also 5-17 and 17 against Nova since the formation of the new Big East. Not exactly record-breaking here. We're not exactly tearing the walls down against the Wildcats. Sure, but if for all the times that we lose to them and we have these frustrating losses or the blowouts or the, the losing streak down in Philly, every time they got one of those big wins I mentioned above, how special were those wins? 
I mean, they, they, they just stand out. You got the Gibbs shot. You got the Big East tournament title. You got breaking the, the streak in Villanova or right down in Philly. I mean, they're, they're monumental wins when they got those wins. You just proved my point, Mike. You literally just remembered every single win and gave a little example from that game, Mike. If you're actually in a rivalry, you're not remembering all the wins. I, I, I get that. I, I but this wasn't a rivalry debate. This was a hey, does Willard get the credit for having positivity in terms of the big wins throughout his career? Yes, he's got some cons. Five and seventeen against Nova, Mike. Come on, I, I, what, what, you know. But, this but, is the... but it's not just Nova. You know, we tend to play down to the competition. Let's let's look at our record against the Paul. Don't do it. Don't do it. No, it hurts. Don't do it. Of the biggies since they started. Mike, we're old enough. Well, at least I'm old enough to remember when DePaul was a national power, Mike. You don't remember when Mark Aguirre. You don't remember Mark Aguirre. Rod Strickland, Mark Aguirre, all these big time players. We're Quentin 50. Richardson, Quentin oh, Richardson, yeah. baby. <laughs> Quentin Richardson was so awful. 15 and 7 against DePaul during his tenure. Not exactly what you want to see against the dregs of the Big East. Additionally, Mike, how many times did we need to suffer year in, year out at an absolute no show during the season? I'm going to go through them. It's going to be ugly. It's one a year. That's the problem. It's one a year right now, right? 2015, Big East Tournament, 22-point loss to Marquette, 16. 15-point loss to Creighton. Is that, wait, is that, is, hang on. Is that the one that he ended up benching all the starters and then they had to have the Derek Gordon players-only meeting right after? <laughs> his, yeah, the the, the we, first of many? The first of many? Don't we always have a players-only No, but that was but that was the first one, though. That, that was the landmark first-ever player meeting there, if I'm not mistaken. People don't recall how important Derek Gordon was to that team. 2017, Nova by 30. 2018, Creighton by 17 and Nova by 18. 2019, Villanova by 28. Oh, that was that was the national watch party day, wasn't it? Yes, it was painful, and we paid we overpaid for that Indian food while we were watching that game. Well, that's the that's the problem right there. You don't eat Indian food in college basketball. Where's like a beer and a the dog? The only or, place come that on. was open, Mike. That that's not I, our fault. That's Alan O'Brien's fault. Wow, you really gonna take a shot at Alan O'Brien on the podcast like that? The guy you. organizes the guy organizes the get together, and you're gonna throw him under the bus. Love Come you, on. but your your skills are lacking. 2020, it's almost like we can give them a pass for this one. 20 points to Rutgers. Eh. Miles Powell suffers a concussion. You know, we could give them that pass there. 2021, oh, was this painful. Creighton, 36 points. And this year, the special game at Walsh. After we had just beaten St. John's, we lose by 21, and it wasn't even that close. Mike, we have a bad reputation of just not showing up. And, you know, we didn't even mention that game against Xavier a few years ago where basically that cost us the season. Oh, no, what the heck? You cannot put the Xavier game at home where they came out flat 
they rally back and they lose by a few points. You could not put that game in the debacle of what you just that rattled off. That was a debacle game, no, no, Mike. No, I don't you care. Put the, you got to put the whiskey down. Alan, I'm apologizing right now. Tom's had way too many whiskey. I'm watching him knock him back as we do this, do the episode right now. He's off his rocker. The Xavier game was a missed opportunity. What is egregious about the games that you listed off right now, where these were all hang your head in disappointment and embarrassment type games where we're coming back and talking about it as fans or we're reviewing it on the podcast. And they were kind of almost shameful performances. And it made you question where the head was for the team and where they could go from that point in the season. And it kind of almost felt like you had to endure one of those every year. Why do we have to endure one of those every year? It was kind of scratch your head to an extent. But, Mike, but there was other there, there was other scratch your head moments, though. It's not just these individual games. The team won two Thanksgiving tournaments that we forgot to mention in the positive section, right? They had the, the Illinois State uh, win that they had in 2015. They beat Miami out in, uh, I think it was out in the West Coast, if I'm not mistaken, right? It was at the Wooden Classic. Right, there you go. 2018, we should have been there. I don't know what the heck we were thinking. No, I, think I was in the, Chicago. For yeah, you went on vacation or something like that. <laughs> But then we come back to these other Thanksgiving tournaments, and I always felt pretty frustrated. The, those were not elite fields the two times that we won a championship, but Willard put us in a position to play with, with some really competitive tournament fields, you know, high-ranked, power five, power six type schools. And in opening games in those other tournaments, we played in nine others beside the two that we won. Did you know that we are two and seven in the opening games of those tournaments? And every time that we lost the opening game, whether it was, you know, a missed opportunity or a choke job, it led to a significantly weaker opponent in the remaining portion of that tournament, whether it's the loser's bracket or the constellation game. I'll give you a couple of examples. Do you remember the meltdown against Oklahoma? They were like up 10 with like a minute to play and somehow they blew that game. And number one, Michigan state, was waiting on the other side. We interviewed Sterling Gibbs, and that one still eats at him today. And dare I bring up the 19-point collapse to Oregon. See, that's another one that is just a game we just pooped the bed at the in the second half. 19-point lead, Mike. It's the fallout, though. There was the opportunity to then play Gonzaga and move on and play in Michigan to possibly be ranked in the top five if we pulled that tournament out. It, it just wasn't meant to be. And then you have other opportunities where they missed out and they lost to Long Beach State. That Isaiah Whitehead team lost to Long Beach State. And then they also had a chance to vault themselves into the top 10 and they lost to URI. And Danny Hurley, of all people, with like two of their starters out. Ah, we just, we had not had the success in those Thanksgiving tournaments. I'm grateful that we've been on the national stage to play in those games and I hope we continue to do so. But uh, not not glowing results like we were hoping to kind of get the non-conference off to the starts that we expected you know additionally senior hall seasons always seem to be like these roller coaster rides you know roller coasters you start going up you up 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 and boom you go down and what is our big drop off january the january swoon the seton hall slide Whatever you want to call it, and whoever you want to credit for naming it that, we just seem to do a really bad job every season for an entire month, Mike. 
and you can't be a good program when you just decide to take a month off in the season. No, you could be a good program. We've been a good program. You can't be an elite program. You can't take that next jump. You can't be that top four seed line and position yourself for a favorable matchup to get to that second weekend. That's been the criticism. Don't have the January swoon and they be in better position come March to not be in the 8-9 game. That's that's the criticism here. And then when you get to the NCAA tournament, maybe you wouldn't be 1-5 if you're not always playing in the 8-9 game or the 7-10 game. That's a tough game to play in. It's kind of a 50-50 game. And guess what? He's not even 50-50. 1-5. And I think what kind of really drives a stake into most fans' hearts is now you're on the big stage. Most people, I always joke and say the common fan doesn't really know who Seton Hall is. But then all of a sudden you're talking to your buddies, you're at the office, and the brackets come out. And they go, Tom, Tom, Tom Seton Hall is in the bracket this year. And you're like, yep, those are my guys. Those are my guys. How are they doing? You dumbass. You got the bracket in front of you. How are they doing? They're the eight seed. They made the tournament. They're one of the best 32 teams in the country. How are they doing? Should I pick them? Should I pick them, Tom? Yeah, go ahead, guys. Pick them. And then they lose the first game, and they come back in on Monday, and they're like, oh, you screwed me. You pirates screwed me. One point, you dumbass. You get one point for picking the 8-9 game. You didn't have Seton Hall knocking off the number one to advance to the Sweet 16. Stop complaining that I blew up your bracket. It's but not that- like the nine is beating the one in the next round, Mike. So if you don't, you know, stop it with that. But, you know, it's You funny. want relevance, though, right? You want relevance, though, right? You want to win that game. You want to play that game against Kansas because – That's when people are watching. They're watching that Saturday, Sunday. They're seeing who moves on to the Sweet 16. That's when you're relevant. Bowing out in the first round doesn't come across as like a culminating positive to to put a bow on the season. You you never walk away from a 16-point loss to Gonzaga, a 16-point loss to Wofford, a 27-point land basting against TCU and feel good about the season at that point. Or, God, choking that lead to Arkansas. They had that game. You know, it's funny because a lot of times people say it's always about matchups. And if you look at Seton Hall's one and five record during the NCAA tournament under Willard, it's not that we had bad matchups. It's not that at all. It's that we didn't perform. I will, I'm willing to give the team uh, the benefit of the doubt against Gonzaga that year. And I know you're anti this, but... It was a bad draw. It was up in the altitude. It was on the west side of the country. It was the last game of the season. It was the first time Seton Hall had made the the tournament in, I don't know, at that point. What was it? The decade. I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that they showed up for that game and they lost. It it happens. It, It happens. Can we put I'm this not Gonzaga- giving them, I'm not giving them the Arkansas one for a benefit of the doubt. I'm not giving them the Wolford, the Sun Belt champions. And I'm certainly not giving them any benefit of the doubt for just not showing up against TCU, which I bet we get to later. Look, I, I'm gonna. this is the last time I'm going to talk about Gonzaga. I am tired of hearing that was a bad matchup where they got screwed with I'm the I'm not seating. saying they're a bad matchup. No, but here's the problem. Everyone hears Gonzaga and they go, oh, Gonzaga, like this Gonzaga program? Wow, what? A, that's just really sucks to have to play Gonzaga. That team had very limited guard play and they had to run the table Basically, in the WCC regular season, they won the conference tournament, 
and still got an 11 that year. That's how well-respected that Gonzaga team was by the NCAA committee. Well, I think they were 15-3 and three in the WCC and won their conference tournament and still got an 11. What, Put that what, into perspective. What, that was about a junior Sabonis, and that was about it, that team. No, they had Wiltshire, and they had Karnuski. They no, had no, a no, pretty... don't give me they had the fat Polish kid at center. But they did, they no, did. He, won... he wasn't very good. Stop it. Didn't he win the Kareem Abdul-Jawar yeah, he, yeah, Angel got hosed. Stop it. <laughs> My point is, they had a pretty strong front line. They lacked guard play. Seton Hall should have dominated them in the backcourt in that game. And Isaiah, unfortunately, went 4 of 24. It is what it is. But we're belaboring this point here. Mike, again, just like the overall program success section, it's about half and half. He's about 50-50. The positive and the negative, they're about right there. But I think it depends on what your expectation was as to how you evaluate those pros versus the cons that we kind of also covered. If you had the expectation of getting back to being relevant, playing in meaningful games, having big wins outside of what you experienced with Gonzalez and the first five years of Willard, that was non-existent. So for him to get you back to positive basketball, winning basketball, being relevant, for some people, all those accolades outweigh the, the, the missteps outweigh the January swoon because the January swoon was also always answered with rallying back. And then you have other people that go, I want more. I want that sweet 16. I want to try to get back to the PJ days, whether it's relevant or not. And then these pitfalls, these, these setbacks resonate with those people more than some of the accolades do. And I think that's why you have your Willard haters and why you have your Willard supporters, and people have a difficult time trying to find the balance in the middle. Here's here's where I go with this. It, it seems like Seton Hall never really was in, in the running to be the best team in the Big East during Willard's time. It always seemed like, yeah, about third place was feeling good. But and- if I told you, hey, but, but during the Gonzalez time, if I said... Sign on the dotted line right now, seven straight years. You're right there in the mix to make the NCAA tournament or route third place in the Big East. You're going to play relevant non-conference games. You're going to have some top 25 wins. Would you have signed up for that? No, that's not my mentality. I've got to see consistent improvement or at least some rays of light. I've got to get that opportunity, get to that second week of the tournament at least once or twice. Okay, you go to you go to the NCAA tournament, you lose to Gonzaga. You go to the tournament and you lose a heartbreaker the second time you get there. You gotta show me some improvement, Mike. Well, that's the thing. I, I thought they were really only a relevant threat to make it to the second weekend, maybe once or twice. Now, obviously. COVID wiped out the 2020 NCAA tournament, and that's always going to be a big what if. But in the years that they were actually a part of the tournament when it was played, I feel like they really only had a a threat to make it there maybe twice. And the second time was they're going to have to knock off a number one. So that was kind of frustrating in KC, Desi, and Angel's senior season. But like I said, it comes back to perspective. I think depending on what your expectations were and what you wanted out of this program as a fan base, people are going to laud the positives, And if people felt like they wanted more, they're going to accentuate the negatives. So you have these divided camp 
on evaluating Kevin Willard for this portion of his resume. Like we let, let's move on because he's got another portion that I think he fails on and, and that, that has more of a stain on his resume. I think that what held us back is the ability to recruit at an elite level. Now he does have some pros. He was able to bring in that Isaiah Whitehead class. I mean, that class yielded Whitehead, Delgado, KC, Desi, Ish. That, that's that's quite a class. And that Enzi, class. Enzi. And and Enzi, too. So, sorry. I mean, to slight Mike there. He didn't play that first season. He was uh, ineligible academically. Well, so sometimes he, you forget about he that. Got, uh, he got recruited that season, that is, Mike. That so is, he that can't is, that leave him correct. out. That's correct. I mean, and so so he did what he needed to do to lock down that class. He gave away some assistant jobs in order to dangle the carrot for those players to come as part of the package. It's not the first time a coach has done that nationally. Larry Brown did it to get Danny Manning. That's not illegal. It might be frowned upon, but you know what? Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. So my hat's off to Kevin. His back was up against the wall. He came out swinging and it turned up smelling roses. And then he also had a knack for getting that under-recruited three-star New York, New Jersey player to stay home, represent the area, that tough inner city kid that represented, you know, the, the, the geography that Seton Hall was representing here. I, I like that. That, that, was, that was a positive in his recruiting, was it not? Yeah, you know, you always like to see the guys that show up the Jared Rodens, Ishmael Sonogo, who came out of Newark. These guys show up unheralded, under-recruited, and they play big parts for the team. Yeah, that's exciting. We always love those guys. How bad? How much did we love Ish, Mike? We loved Ish. Yeah, you, you like that guy who brings his lunch pail to work kind of situation, right? And that, and that was Ish. He, he got there, he got down and dirty on defense, and he got better as the years went by. We'll talk about player development in a moment, but th- those are the kind of guys you fell in love with, and you feel like they're your own because they come from your, your backyard, right? The, the neighborhoods that you are familiar with and can resonate with, you know, representing New Jersey. We're watching all that with Sean St. Peter's right now. That matters to the fan base. You know what? He's also brought in some guys through the transfer portal that have really been positive and that we've connected with as a fan base as well. And I just, just to name a few, Quincy McKnight, Madison Jones, the aforementioned Derek Gordon. How about Eugene Teague? Remember when they brought in Eugene early on? He was solid. And I, I know this guy gets some, some flub, but you know, Sterling Gibbs was a good transfer poll by Kevin Willard. He just I, was. I loved Sterling Gibbs. Sterling Gibbs gets a bad rap because he ended up going to UConn for his, uh, his graduate season. But I mean, in addition to the portal, he's used the portal to another extent. This is just not finding the diamond in the rough or finding the guy that fits his program or, you know, fills that, that missing component of the roster. He's also been able to kind of build upon, let's say his recruiting misses or his recruiting involvement. Sometimes you're not going to win the guy the first time over, but Seton Hall is in the mix for a lot of guys and they just come up short. And maybe there was a second choice or the third choice. And the guy decides to go away from home. And as we learn, you know, these kids are young. They learn from their experiences and maybe realize going to the other side of the country or all the way down south was not in their best interest. So they come back home. And all of a sudden, on the second time around, we get that guy, Bryce Aiken, Kadari Richmond, maybe not coming back home, but Trey Jackson, we were in the mix to win his services the first time around. He's been successful at, hey, it didn't work out. You liked me. 
I've stayed positively in contact with you. We didn't sour the relationship when you chose the other school. Boom, I get you on the rebound. That's been a positive for him as well. I feel like I'm going to be the negative Nancy here, but Mike, recruiting's not Kevin's strong point. 12 years, he lands only five top 100 recruits. We're talking Whitehead, Delgado, Powell, Kale, and Weston. That's not a good batting average. Additionally, bunch of swing and misses. And you could make almost an all-conference team out of the guys that he missed that we were supposed to be pulling in. Kyle Anderson, Trayvon Duvall, Javon Quinterly, Nas Reed, Earl Timberlake. I mean, come on. Darius Maddox, a freaking Posh Alexander, Adama Sinogo, all guys that were supposed to come to Seton Hall or at least had, you know, a lot of rumors of them leaning our direction couldn't close the deal, Mike. And a lot of these names, what do a lot of these names have similarities in? Point guard position, Mike. We could never land that big point guard. Yeah, well, that, that, that's the thing that stands out. I mean, this you, you, that's a hell of a list that we missed on. You're not gonna, you're not gonna win them all. I mean, it'd be nice if we got one or two. You're not gonna win them all. You go back to the top 100 recruits. You named five. You got to remember, we gave away those jobs to land two of them. You know, Whitehead 14, Delgado 42. Those are the only two guys in the top 50. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but if Miles Powell was recruited with the body that he came into Seton Hall with and not the broken foot and the overweight, out of shape body, does Miles Powell come to Seton Hall? No, he was a, he was bound for Connecticut. He has stated he wanted to go to Connecticut. But, Mike, more importantly than that, good for Seton Hall for staying on the Powell Trail. In addition, when Kevin Willard showed up on campus, his initial recruiting classes were lacking. I mean, the first couple of years, he still was dealing with a lot of talent out of the Gonzo years. Whether they were good citizens or not, I'm not here to judge that. But he decided he was going his own direction, and he was pulling a lot of non-biggies talent to the program. We're talking the Sean Grennans of the world, the Harold Carlises, Aaron Jaramapur. I know he's a big favorite of yours because he did a good job walling up. But the Aaron Crosby's, Freddie Wilson's, Kevin Johnson's, Tom Mayans. Yes, I, I I get it. All connected to the Canaries Basketball Academy pipeline, Tom. Not I, all I get them. it. I mean, Freddie Wilson, <laughs> but, you know, Freddie Wilson ends up going to Drexel afterwards. That shows you the talent level there. But pe people might sit there and say the reason why he had to go after these guys to fill roster spots is because their relationships within the high school ranks were so uh, muddied and burned by, by Bobby Gonzalez that he had to start such at ground zero and building these relationships up again. So, all right, th there's different sides to that argument as well. Let's talk about the transfer portal. Like you said, every, every bullet point has a pro, every bullet point has a con. So everyone now is giving Willard this credit for he's his portal master and the portal needs to be a big component of your recruiting process. Yes, I, I agree. But every time that you hit in the portal, you also have times where he missed it in the portal. And this guy, I was a fan of this guy, but to call Molson was an absolute miss. Only shot 20% from three and then transferred back out to James Madison and dropped back down in his level of competition. Remember Braden Anderson? 
Brayden Anderson out of Fresno State. Good with law the, with school the, kid. I like with Brayden the, Right, with the banged up knee. So you got kind of a little bit of damaged goods in terms of his, his injury history. And what happens? He can't handle the basketball load in addition to his law school ambitions. And look, it's a great story on the side. But in terms of basketball recruiting, that's a miss. You know, nice story that Carino could write. Little puff piece. Fits, fits the narrative. No problems there. But, hey, they needed front court support. And Braden had a scholarship and didn't play. Didn't play. Speaking of not playing, Toria Thompson, Tom. Good old Toria Thompson. Supposed to be the second best player on the roster when he first comes in. He plays 27 games his first year. Never starts one of them. We swung and, and in, miss on that one, Mike. We swung in, and miss. His second season, he was a DMP the entire season, oh, except for that, four minutes. Yeah, four was, minutes. You know what? That was not his fault, Mike. That was not his I, I, fault. I, I, That's I got a better one. Acting poorly. I got a better one. We you know we try to kind of fill the point guard void, and all I heard was, "Wait till you see Javon Thomas take the court and the energy that he brings." He's going to well, be the best defensive player in the Big East. That's well, what he, I remember. He, he took the court for a total of ten games, ninety-two minutes, and a robust two career field goals for Seton Hall. He had eight assists, thirteen turnovers, and seventeen fouls. He was quite so, the choke artist, Mike. That's what I like. So there's going to be times where you hit a home run in the transfer portal, and there's going to be times where you strike out and miss. And I feel like the narrative got put, you know, built up that Willard was just this transfer portal guru. I think at the end he became a little over-reliant on the transfer portal, and I even thought you heard those undertones in his welcome speech uh, when he took the Maryland job. Well, I, uh, if you don't hit on the high school recruiting You've got to get your talent somewhere. And, yes, he becomes over-reliant on it out of necessity more than anything else, Michael. Because, you know what, unless you're bringing in those four- and five-star guys from high school, you got to fill your roster with something. Yeah, but then you end up with issues with depth when you end up over-hyping the transfer because maybe it just doesn't work out or it takes time to integrate. Right. You have Trey Jackson, who needed to sit out the entire season when across the country, everybody else who transferred was you know, listed as immediately eligible. And then Trey Jackson played like three or four games of garbage time. So we didn't get the depth that everybody else in the country got. You had Aiken, who was injured all the time. Kadari was supposed to be the starting point guard this year, and he wasn't immediately ready. He got sent to the bench because Aiken supplanted him in the starting rotation. And then. Up, up until the back end of the season, or maybe the last third of the season, Jameer Harris was completely overmatched in, in the Big East play or at the higher D1 level of competition. That was apparent. Kudos to him for kind of picking up his game and making an impact, but we didn't get the Jameer Harris that was advertised to us. So, but who was advertising him, Michael? Between I'm just reading the press clippings. I'm, I'm going to throw Carino under the bus again. No, it wasn't just Carino, John Fanta, a lot of good John Rothstein. Shame on me for guys going to practice and overhyping guys off of what they see in a couple well, of practices. But, but, Mike, what you see is guys coming in on second chances, and this is where supposedly Willard was supposed to be this master at player development. So my, my last takeaway for the whole recruiting section is if we would have landed a point guard in any one of these seasons where we had the swoon or we had that tournament team that finished in the eight, nine seed, and we had that missing piece, how, how successful could those teams have been? 
Oh, if you had Trayvon Duvall, right? Trayvon Duvall with that team, right? Oh, when it, you have a point guard that can set up your better players for easier baskets or even your less talented players, you put them in positions to succeed, it's going to be so much easier. You've got less of that need to go one-on-one. But what, what I'm looking at here, Mike, is you're getting all these guys either at second chances or lower recruited players, and it feeds into the narrative of Willard being this great player development guy. And he's had success at player development. Let's not pretend he hasn't. I mean, he's got tons of examples of guys that he took and brought up higher. You're talking the Mamus, the Rogills, Jared Roden, Desi Rodriguez, Ishmael Sonogo, Mike Enzi. Even Miles Powell to a certain extent and Patrick Auda. Here's there you go. I'm gonna throw you a Patrick Auda while I'm at it. Guys that were lower recruits for one reason or another that ended up being real successful. And lots of accolades came with these guys. We're talking two biggest players of the years. We're talking six. Six, Mike. First team, all biggies selections. 15 all Big East selections in general, two defensive player to years, and two most improved players. That's a lot of hardware for guys that were under-recruited. That's a nice list. That was a nice list. You want a list? I'll, I'll give you a list, too. How about, how about player development? Torian Thompson. Player development? Ike Obiagu. Guy averages two and a half points his senior season. The guy was blocking two and a half shots a game in 10 minutes of play down at Florida State. He comes here and essentially duplicates it. Everyone goes, player development. No, 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 folks. He was already doing that. When did he get better offensively? When did he get better in pick and roll defense? When did he get better at rebounding? No, no, no. That's not fair, Mike. He did improve by senior year in the pick. Because you heard your pocket. You heard your pocket. He can't grab a rebound. (laughs) This guy doesn't grab a rebound. Then he goes out and gets 10 the next game. Maybe we should have been there motivating these guys. Tyree Samuel. I could have gotten sick over the amount of times that I heard, break out this. Break out that. It's coming this game. It's coming this year. Did it come? Did, has it come yet? Freshman year. Since freshman year, they've been saying the same thing, Michael. Jordan Walker, Dominguez Stevens, Eron Gordon, Miles Carter, Veer Singh, Tyler Powell, Darnell Brody, Dalton Soffer, Rashid Anthony. Here, why do I give you that list? Because you gave me the Canaries Basketball Academy and the Sean Grennans and Freddie Wilsons of the world because those were the first five years of Kevin Willard's recruiting regime. Hey, he had his challenges, and we can blame that all on Bobby Gonzalez. These are guys he's recruited in this last window here, this successful seven-year window. Why can't these guys get developed? Why are these guys transferring out after one or two years? Were they they just bad recruits? Should they have been in the bad recruiting category? Or is this your inability to develop all your players? You can develop certain players, but the other 50% you can't develop? Where where are we going here? I I don't know. Out of that list, certainly Jordan Walker and Darnell Brody became productive players for their respective teams. Uh, And look, and, and other guys did not, but that's not the point. The point, they were in your program, and in your program, you're supposed to be known for getting them to a, doesn't have to be an elite level, but just better. These guys did not get better. 
I, I here here's one to maybe end this section here that always kind of irks me. Where do you put Angel Delgado in terms of the player development evaluation? You know, this is a really good question here, Mike, because I, I I'll state for the for my opinion that Angel never really changed much as a player. From his freshman year to his senior year, his numbers got better, but that's kind of expected as you get older and you get more physical and you get more seasoned. But from a skill set, there's nothing Angel did from freshman year to senior year that really differentiated. You know when he did differentiate, Mike? When we drove up to Ontario to watch him play for the Agua Caliente Clippers. Because all of a sudden, Angel was jumping. Angel was running. Angel was shooting well. I mean, it was it was mind-boggling. It was eye-opening. This from the kid that couldn't dunk it in the Seton Hall commercial. And he's all over the floor. Like I'll challenge anybody because you you got you're talking from experience when we went to go watch him. Rewind the clock even a couple months back before that. The immediate thirty to sixty days after he left Seton Hall, he started working with an agent and they started putting a team around him of you know strength and conditioning and guys to help him work on his game. And like I said, we're talking thirty to sixty days post Seton Hall pre-draft workout type stuff. And Angel was jumping over buildings. Angel was knocking down three pointers with fluidity. I it was it was like what the heck just happened? Who so, is this guy? But why didn't we see any of that progression in four years at Seton Hall? Where was that explosive athleticism in terms of what Seton Hall was able to do for Angel? Maybe if they gave him that, he probably doesn't come back for his senior year. But my point was there was a startling difference. Go go out there and look up those YouTube videos of Angel and the night and day transformation after he left the program. To me, that screams development. Angel just increasing his numbers and being a 22-year-old man-child versus an 18-year-old freshman, I'm with you. I expected him to put up bigger numbers and better numbers as his career progresses. That's what's supposed to happen when you stay four years in college, is it not? Well, absolutely. So I think what we're saying here is the uh, player development uh, some good some good some not so good as once again but you know balancing the scales i just don't think he's a great player developer i think he's good but i think players get better at other programs too this seton hall is not the only program where guys get better that we're not four and five star guys i mean how many times does jay wright coach up guys that were not five-star players wasn't Colin Gillespie like a two-star player and he's biggies player of the year it happens at other schools supposedly wasn't even recruited at a high school I think Buffalo wanted him for crying out loud my my point is it it can happen you work hard you work with your coaches it can happen across many different programs it does happen across many different programs and it also doesn't work out for a lot of guys with the initial school that they choose that is not an indictment on the staff each and every time that it's bad. It's also shouldn't be glorified every time that it does work out. I think there's like a lot of 50 50 here again is what I was getting at. Speaking of 50 50, let's talk about Willard in game coaching his offensive and defensive metrics and his overall system. I think he's going to be remembered as a strong defensive coach and he's going to take a lot of slack for his offensive numbers. Let's kind of dive into some of the pros on the defensive side and then I'll let you have at it with the offensive stuff. And I'm going to lean on Ken Palm here. So the Ken Palm efficiency numbers for Kevin Willard's teams 
nine times he had a team ranked in the top 65 nationally, six times he had a team ranked in the top 35, and twice he had a team ranked in the top 10, 10 specifically. Ironically, it was his very first season with the Gonzo holdover players in the 2011 season, and then also in that Whitehead uh, tournament team, that 15-16 campaign, they also finished 10th nationally. I, I don't doubt when you look back on Kevin's defensive philosophy, he's going to be credited with playing hard-nosed man-to-man, throwing that occasional creative matchup zone. And most of his guys were able to switch one through four and sometimes one through five on ball screens defensively, which made them very difficult to try to score against. I'll let you have some fun, Tom. Go ahead. Go ahead. Hit me with how they did offensively. Well, Mike, I'm not going to pretend that I'm the big Ken Palm numbers guy that you are, but you know, there's no secret that Kevin was had a lack of creativity when it came to offense. And as a matter of fact, you don't got to take my word for it, Michael. You could take Coach Willard's word for it. They might have a better zone offense, and if you ask the Seton Hall fans, they will tell you everybody has a better zone offense than me. Now, oh. Kevin's not <laughs> wrong there, Mike. Offensively, from a Ken Palm efficiency ranking, they only reached the top 73 times. And we're talking about as a high watermark, in 2017-18, they reached 17th, and that was the KC Delgado-Desi senior season. Again, they reached 29th in Miles Powell senior season, but that's about it. Those are outliers, if you ask me. Past that, from the eyeball test, you know the offenses were one thing. It was either weave or it was ISO. That's all about it. And the lack of creativity on play sets was there for the seeing. I mean, how many times were we excited when A, inbounds play, worked out for us, Mike? I'm not talking about a series of plays. I'm talking about an inbounds play it's just it wasn't pleasant to watch most of the time yeah, but but they have the one to mamu to win the butler game and like that's all is for it that's but like all, was, all, it. all was forgiven as like a decade of bad inbounds plays wiped away by that one good one and his response in the post game was like well i was up late night watching a sacramento kins game and i stole it and i'm sitting there going you had to wait a decade to steal it you couldn't watch another basketball game or film of like a, an instructional tutorial on how to run an inbound play. Well, like, like I, in all serious, Mike. In all seriousness, Mike. That's where we're going with this. It seemed like Coach Willard was never self-aware enough to say to himself, "This is not a strong suit of mine. I either need to do some more work. I need to bring someone in." It just seemed like this is who I am. This is what I do, and this is as good as it's going to get. Yeah. Oh, speaking of not being self-aware, I mean, I hated the hockey substitutions. That drove me nuts. And to be honest, the awareness or lack of awareness of being able to land the guy that he needed to fill the vacant roster spot led to many guys playing at a position. So the efficiency on offense suffers because you have Kadeen Carrington, Shavar Reynolds, playing point guard when they're two guards you have miles kale playing shooting guard when he's a small forward you got mamu playing point forward when god i know he's got that skill set occasionally but 
The guy should have been dominating, you know, in the post, in the half court, and you got him bringing the ball up at 6'10"? Well, come, well, come that, on. Like, you had Mamu playing center when he's not that kind of player. No, you had no. Desi, you had Desi playing the four in his freshman year when he's certainly not a power forward. So you've had... You've had smaller examples through the years of things like this happening. So you have some of the other categories bleed into each other, right? So now we're picking on guys playing out of position. That's a trickle down from some of the recruiting misses or, and whatnot. But, you know, I, I thought Trey Jackson should have been playing the three this year. I mean, he completely didn't fit the mold of a four. I mean, when he was making a shot, you were like, all right, mismatch stretch four, but that only happened on a handful of occasions. I'd like to see guys kind of get a better fit for where their skill sets are. Um, all right, let, let's keep moving here. The, the biggest thing that people are going to remember Kevin for outside of the big wins and some of the big names that we talked about, they're going to talk about culture. They're going to talk about from where Seton Hall was when he came on to where they are when he walked out the door. And that's going to be his legacy, whether we like it or not. We're going to go back and reminisce about some of these great games and, and the, the, the misses but he's going to be credited with his culture that he created at Seton Hall. He stepped in and cleaned up the Bobby Gonzalez mess. I'm not calling it a dumpster fire. I hate that. The overuse of that word. It was a mess. It was clearly a mess. And he took a team that where there were character issues and he had players graduate and graduate with honors. He had 72 all big East academic selections and he had two Big East Scholar Athletes of the Year in Michael Enzi and Ike Obiagu. And, and, and that gets talked about a lot in terms of their career development outside of basketball. And, and that's a positive because it really resonates with what the student athlete is supposed to be. So it, that should not be minimized at all. And then Tom, he didn't have egregious player off the court issues. Now I, people are going to say that he had some players with off the court issues. We all, they all do to an extent, but there were no DUIs. There were no players being shot. There were no arrests. I mean, there, there was some bad PR in the newspaper that surrounded members of previous regimes, men's basketball players and Seton hall. And, and that was not a good look. We had to get past that. And at the end of the day, because you have these good kids that come into the program they become ambassadors they want to come back they still want to be a part of it how many times are they showing up at practice showing up at the how many times did isaiah white had come back to the rock after he decided to go to the nets he was there like every game right you got mike enzi coming back and he's, he's calling the, the broadcast with popkin because cohen wasn't there that time you know it, it's it's good culture it's it's good family and then these guys take it beyond the court again. It's not just in the classroom. It's Miles Kale standing up for the social injustice and being a mouthpiece in the community. It's seeing all the philanthropic things that the team does throughout the holidays and throughout the year. Those are positive things that make you feel prideful to be Seton Hall and wear that blue. I mean, it, it just does. And then you have these other stories I mean, as much as we joke from time to time that he might have been out of place, the Shavar Reynolds story is quite a story. A guy who rises up from being a walk-on to being the starting point guard by his senior season, whether he was out of position or not, he was still an integral part of that team that just missed making the NCAA tournament. 
and he had some big shots that won them games throughout the uh, his career. Big shot, Shavar Reynolds. You never thought you were going to hear that when he was a walk-on, you know, getting four or five shots up against Wagner. We, we joked about that. Never would have made that connection for his progression in his college basketball career. And then look, Sheen Holloway. He got his start under Willard at Iona. Continued his development opportunity here at Seton Hall as associate head coach. And then fostered him over to St. Peter's with Brian Felt. And now there's a chance to bring him back home. That's under the, the Willard tree. That's part of the culture. And whether we like it or not, when Seton Hall won, Kevin Willard was a PR comedian behind the mic. He was kind of joy. He was playful. Joe, when they won, Tommy, when they won, he was mucking it up with the guys on uh, FS1. He's mucking it up with, uh, you know, Popkin and, and, and Cohen. He's a positive, happy guy. But... But, you know, as with everything else in this podcast, with the good comes the bad. And everyone likes to point out all the good that Kevin Willard did and all the good things in the program. We still had some black eyes, whether they were publicized or not, Mike. I mean, let's start off with that big Isaiah Whitehead, Angel Delgado recruiting class. Jobs had to be given away. There's no two thing. There's no two ways about it between Tiny Morton and the Antigua brothers. I mean, you know, we're talking about guys that got jobs to secure recruits. And as we're talking about recruits, Mike, let's not forget our boy and Keel Carr from Baltimore and all that nightmare of a recruiting process. Oh, Carr had his issues with some domestic violence. He was the crime stopper. I mean, who knew I that mean, he was going to get involved? He might have been the crime stopper when he played, but it seemed like he was the crime doer when he wasn't playing. But it's not like we had a clean locker room either, Mike. I mean, Jaron Cena... Just left. Last game of his career, Mike, he puts up like seven, eight of the final shots and then doesn't even show up in the locker room. Just goes. I know you're personally offended by the elbow that Sterling Gibbs threw down on Ryan Archidinacono. I don't care about him. It doesn't bother me as much. Bro, how, how does that not bother you? The, the team was falling apart amidst like an eight-game, nine-game losing Nova streak. kid. He deserved an elbow in the back take, of his take head. Your, take your hatred narratives and your personal vendettas and put them aside for Can't a second. separate here. my feelings, Mike. It is what the, it the, is. The point is... Is it's a they're playing a nationally ranked team. They're losing that game, and all of a sudden he drops his head right to the to the the court, and his head bounces. And all I'm thinking about is, uh oh, this is her Pope nut punch all over again. You know, the, what, you know what offends me, Mike? Javon Thomas choking a, a referee for the rec league at the hall, Mike. That's what bothers me, Mike. It's not like we've had this clean team. And Willard himself has had great members of the team that have had issues. Ishmael Sonogo got thrown off the team, Mike. You remember those days? I, I the, remember. The they, they, they begged, they to, begged to bring him back. They begged to I bring him back. Jordan Walker was so upset about not playing against Rutgers when he came back from injury. He quit. He was done with it, man. This and, and, and let's not even bring up 
the Willard Doghouse. Because you have every, to bring, you have every, to bring it up. Every, you gotta bring ge- it up. Every generation of team seemed to have a doghouse member. I mean, it wasn't a season until Desi got pulled two minutes into a game and told to sit down for the rest of the game, Mike. Anthony Nelson. What happened to Dominguez Stevens? There were games that the walk-ons played that he didn't even sniff the court. Yeah, I, I don't get it, man. They get the Tory and Thompson tampering. Uh, and I hate to say it, at the end of the day, this is still a black cloud that's kind of lingering out there, but you have the Miles Powell lawsuit. You know, I, I, I'm assuming that it's going to all work out in Seton Hall's favor, but, you know, until that goes away, that, that could be a potential black eye for the program, you know, down the road. You, I want to go back real quick to the Antigua and Tiny uh jobs that were given away i don't care that jobs were given away it was the character of guys they gave the jobs to that bothered me right these are guys that are just you know tiny brought his entourage with him right and tiny was trying to call the shots you were given an opportunity you don't get to come call the shots and on top of that you know the antigua brothers are just known for shady under the table recruiting types of deals so you got angel Never heard of anything under the table shady, but you're just you were associating with a name that was not uh, known for being clean within the college basketball landscape. So that's my issue with how we gave away the jobs. You can give away jobs, but the two names that were connected with it were not positive. Antigua goes down to South Florida to coach with his brother one month later. And before you know it, the following season, Tiny's back in the high school ranks. So. I mean, it, obviously, they were not positive influences on the Seton Hall program beyond the two players we got. So, Mike, I mean, it, it, the bottom line is I think Kevin Willard's final legacy can can be described as such. He was a really good coach, but he wasn't a great coach at the end of the day. And I think that's what bothers me the most about the the Willard apologists, if you will. You know, the, the way they build him up they want to build him a statue out in front of the rec center. Well, you don't get a statue out in front of the rec center for averaging third place, Mike. You just don't. You don't get a participation trophy? Don't no, everybody get a participation is, I trophy? No, I'm not getting, we're not helicopter parents. We're, yeah. we're fans. But, but he's going to be remembered, like I said, he's going to be remembered for navigating through the gonzo fallout it just is and he deserves it and he coached a clean program and he graduated his players for the most part sure and the and he had moderate success i mean season hall needed they needed to taste success and and not failure so he's going to get credit for that and the last seven years were mostly positive in terms of the wins and losses we don't like the swoons we don't like the missed opportunities or the potential ceiling that was created but for the most part it was a winning program at that point. You know, they, they they left, in my opinion, there are some fans that are going to say he left opportunities on the table by not advancing further in March. That's going to be a part of his legacy as well. But he's always going to have this little nugget, this what if that references back to the COVID-19 2020 NCAA tournament. Because you've you got people that debate back and forth on both sides. And people are going to sit there and go, well, he could have reached monumental heights in that postseason. And there are some people that say, hey, after they lost the last two games of the regular season, they were not trending in the right direction 
maybe they were not going to. And that's just a huge what if debate. But he is going to be regarded in high esteem when his tenure is looked back on down the road. We, we, we might not be his biggest fan as we kind of do some of our segments here, but we are going to look back and say, this was a positive era of Seton Hall basketball. Maybe I, I, I don't think you can argue that, Mike. I think, you know, you're right when you say he left money on the table in a few seasons, but he also left the team and the program in a better place than he found it. And that's kind of all you can ask for, guys. But, Mike, I'm going to surprise you. And I've got no – nobody's told me this, but Coach Willard must have listened to our last podcast. Because I said, potentially for the last time, we were going to do deep thoughts with Kevin Willard. But he left us with a gift, Mike. One final shining moment for us to enjoy Kevin's comments before he goes out and coaches the Terrapins. We're going to go to our favorite segment, One Final Time. And now, Deep Thoughts with Kevin Willard. It was just podcasting gold, Mike, that he left us with as he was talking to the Maryland faithful during his opening press conference, Mike. Well, before you play the clip, that's what kind of bothered me as we were leaving the arena in San Diego. I, I know you don't want to walk over and shake hands or wave to the fans when you just got your butt kicked by 27, but people flew 3,000 miles to come support this team. I was expecting the players, the coaches to come over and just kind of give a respectful thank you and wave to the fan base. I wanted to kind of cheer Miles Kale off the court one final time, and only one person even gave a look back and a casual wave, and that was Jameer Harris. So I thought Kevin owed it to the fan base to give one final homage to his time at Seton Hall, and we had to wait to the Maryland press conference just to even get a whiff of something. I would like to thank my Seton Hall family. Uh, I was there for 12 years, and it was home. I get emotional talking about Seton Hall. It's, it was hard to leave. Uh, guys like Pat Lyons, Joe Nyer, Hank D'Alessandro, Jim O'Brien, Alpha and Joe, Kevin Marino are just a handful of great supporters that helped build a program that was really struggling to a program that was ranked in the top 25 seven out of the last eight years, graduated every player, went to six out of the last seven NCAA tournaments and won two, two championships. Uh, I had great support and I want to thank all my players, my staff for their dedication. Uh, I love you guys. And I appreciate everything that you have done. All right, Tom. As always, a lot to unpack here. Could he have said the names any faster? Because we, <laughs> Joe we went... Nyer, not President Nyer, Joe Nyer. I like it. How about your AD? I know he's got ties to Pat Lyons and all of this, but can you show some respect to Brian Felt, the current AD right now? Brian Felt didn't make the list. I don't even know some of the other names that he rattled off, but Brian Felt doesn't make the cut. I don't know. Was one of those guys the guy who pours his coffee in the morning? I don't know what was going on with some of those names. He said they were in the top 25 seven out of the last eight years. That is incorrect. 
They've only been in the top 25, five out of the last eight years. And Tom, I know these are pet peeves for you. I know these had to be pet peeves for you. You said they made six out of the last seven NCAA tournaments. And as you always like to remind me, they didn't play the 2020 tournament. So that doesn't count. And then last but not least, he said they won two championships, which is accurate. But you like to make it clear that there's a distinction between the regular season title that was won and the tournament title that was won because the regular season title shows a consistency over an entire season versus a positive three or four days. And Willard just kind of lumped it in there to two championships. So kind of. That was that was kind of tough. Oh, you know, what's funny with that one is, is that the Maryland fans are not going to get a lot of those references. They're just going to hear him say how much Seton Hall meant to him. And it's going to be a nice little like homage, if you will, to his time there. And he's and they're going to feel good about it because they're going to say he's going to love us as well. But how well does Kevin Willard actually know the Maryland program because he seemed to say a lot of funny things, Mike, and let, let's hear what he said. In 1999, I was, I was working for the Boston Celtics. Uh, I was a, uh, I wasn't, it wasn't really an assistant coach. I was more of a video guy, uh, advanced scout. And back then college basketball wasn't like it was now where it's on TV every night and Tuesday, you can get this game Wednesday, you get this game back then they had big Monday and I, I coach Williams and I were talking in the office. Uh, it was a Thursday night game. And in 1999, I turned on the TV, and there's Joe Smith and Stevie Francis, and they're running up and down the court, and they're throwing alley-oops, and they're dunking, and they're playing, and there's Coach Williams. He's going up and down the sideline. He's sweating. He's got the tail thing going. I loved it. And I remember watching Maryland basketball. Now, Mike, I'm going to say something here. When he turned the TV on in 1999, he may well have seen Stevie Francis, the franchise, throwing passes, dunking the ball, shooting three-pointers. But he certainly didn't see Joe Smith, who had left the school, I don't know, four or five years prior to that. I'm just saying. He, he played 93 to 95. Not not only did he see uh, Joe Smith on the court, he, he's throwing alley-oops back and forth with Steve France. Look, those are two iconic players in the more recent Maryland culture. They know their basketball. You can't mess that up. Kevin, one recommendation, get a PR specialist not only to kind of, you know, handle the difficult, tough questions when you're losing, but to also proofread what you're going to say. You cannot get those facts incorrect. Speaking of getting factual things incorrect, he butchered a big-time name. I Just go ahead, play it. Well, well before we talk about butchering a big-time name, Mike, to go along with your point about getting a PR guy, I think he actually needs to get a creative writing assistant of some sorts. Because for about two minutes and 30 seconds, Kevin Willard goes into this diatribe about what he's going to do for the Maryland program and where he wants to bring the Maryland program. And Mike, I had to bring it down and cut it down to a good 50 seconds, but I want to point out certain things during those 50 seconds. It seemed like Kevin 
got stuck on a word. And now, between me and you, I, I understand how it is. There have been podcasts where we've gone through where we get caught on a word. Like, we love to say the word Uber. I mean, there have been podcasts where we've said Uber three, four times throughout the Kudos to you, Tommy. Kudos Kudos. to you, Tommy. Kudos is another one. But, (laughs) you know, I think he needs a little assistance. But I've I've actually marked out where he needs that assistance, Mike. So let's listen to this clip that I put together. I want to play at that school because they had such swagger. But his teams had a swagger. His players had a swagger. The University of Maryland had a swagger. And what our teams are going to do and what we are going to do is we are going to bring that swagger that and that Joe Smith, Stevie Francis, Steve Blake, uh, I can keep on going on for Jawan Dixon. um, And that the swagger was something that a kid that grew up in Huntington, Long Island, turning on ESPN and watching a Maryland game all of a sudden wants to go play at the University of Maryland and play for a guy because that's how his teams played. We are going to bring the swag to Maryland basketball. Seven times, Michael. Seven times in a two-and-a-half-minute period, he said some sort of the form of the word swag. Let, let, let me start here. Kudos to you. You don't get enough credit <laughs> for the behind-the-scenes post-production work that you do that was, that was pretty cool i i wouldn't even know where to start to put a segment like that together but but that was kind of enjoyable like there is nothing in the 12 years that i observed kevin willard at seton hall that said the word swag or swagger to me when i watched him roam the sidelines do an interview do a pr piece and nothing of the sort said kevin willard and swagger so <laughs> i don't get it but the, the biggest snafu of that entire piece is Maryland has won a national title under the guidance of Juan Dixon. Not Jawan Dixon. He called him Jawan, Tom. I'm sorry. Come on, he's got Joe Smith playing in a time portal five years later, and he's got Jawan Dixon. And he, and he like lists Jawan, excuse me, Juan Dixon. Like fifth in the line, the guy won them a national title. You got to have this stuff written down and you got to put them in order of priority. He didn't even give an homage to any of the older guys, the John Lucases, the Len Elmores, Len Bias. Show me the history of the program. Tell me you're all in with Maryland because Maryland goes back not just the last 20 years, but it has rich tradition and you're going to bring back the swag you're going to bring back the rich tradition. You're going to bring back championships. Say it that way. I'm just glad we didn't hear the opening presser for his time at Seton Hall because I'm sure he brought up Teddy DeHare in his opening remarks here. At the end of the day, I don't know where I sit. Do I sit here and root for Willard to have success at Maryland and build upon his Seton Hall legacy? Am I bitter that he kind of walked out the door and didn't prepare us for the TCU game and kind of left us high and dry? I can't criticize him for the 29 million plus reasons why he had to make a business decision for himself and his family to go to Maryland and walk away from Seton Hall. At the end of the day, my take on this is a lot of positives. It's a lot of things that we were critical about. And we're going to look back and I think we're going to be pleased with the Kevin Willard regime, era, whatever you want to call it. 
but it got stale, did it not? It well, kind of felt not, like it was time to move on at this point. I'm not bitter about Kevin leaving. I'm not going to root against him. I'm certainly not going to root for him. He's done. He's moved on. I'm not rooting for him anymore. It's over, Johnny. It's over. I can't look at him anymore. But he certainly left in a negative fashion. I'm just going to say that. And it kind of fits with how the entirety of his tenure at Seton Hall worked or how the entirety of the tone of this podcast has gone. There's been good and there's been bad. Certainly, this team was not prepared appropriately for their TCU game in the NCAA tournament. There's no way that we should have lost by 27 points to that team. If we lost to them in a close fashion, okay, it goes. But... This is how he left. According to J.P. Pelsman article, he had an agreement in, in principle with Maryland a week before the game was played. His mind was not on this game. His team must have known about this and, they, and a play on the court showed. But more importantly, Mike, I'm actually very surprised that Maryland ended up with Kevin Willard as their head coach. You know, Maryland is a school that fancies themselves, right or wrong, as a national powerhouse, a year-in, year-out contender for the national title. And what did they get with Kevin Willard? They got a guy who's got a lot of good, and he's got a lot of bad. What in Kevin Willard's resume screams winner? The best thing I can say is, They've got basically Mark Turgeon light. It's it's interesting because I mean, in my opinion, he's not a big time recruiter, but maybe the Mellorin resources will change that. I mean, right after he got the job, immediately five-star center ranked seventh nationally from the 2024 class, Derek Queen at a Monteverde in Florida was buying into the Willard culture already, Tom. I mean, he was quoted as saying, they are going to have a good big man coach up there. So they are telling me he's going to help me with my development. I'm assuming that big man coach is Grant following Willard over to Maryland. So, I mean, there's, there's positive stuff already, you know, in his recruiting circles. But just with the good, you also get the bad. There was an AAU coach that goes, I don't see why they're so up in arms over Willard. The narrative right now is a guy like Willard has older teams that he took advantage of. Once this wave of COVID players is over with, you will have to go out and get your players. You're going to have to go back to coaching freshmen again. This is not a slam dunk 100% seal of approval for Kevin Willard in all circles. I mean, there's going to be more expected of him, not only on the court, but also as a public figure. Right out of the gate, he's coming off of a private jet on his way to this press conference. And both of those interactions were completely filled with awkward moments. That's not going to endear them to the fan base. It's going to come across as phony. He's going to have to get better at that. And you said it. They have expectations to be a national title contender. He said it. I'm going to get you there. Well, then one out of five in the tournament ain't going to cut it. And he's not going to have five years to build it up and then beg for his job going into year six. If things are not looking up by the end of year three, 
that seat could get pretty darn hot right away that's the new norm now isn't it there mike i mean that's what we saw at louisville they weren't liking what they were seeing with chris mack after three years and louisville's kind of got the same opinion of itself that maryland does they're not going to wait around for willard to figure this out and look my, my biggest takeaway is he does not like to be challenged in the media Right. We we had some fun with the pros and the cons, and we used one final deep thoughts with Kevin Willard. But when they lost, he went from comedian and jovial and playful to downright short and nasty and curt. And Dave Popkin was probably on the receiving end of it most of the time. And there was also some contentious moments with Zach Braziller in the postgame pressers, even though Zach says they had a pretty good working relationship. You know, at the end of the day, the D.C. media market isn't going to give him the softballs that Jerry Carino lobs up after every game. It's not about the puff piece. It's not about the feel-good story. They want wins, wins and losses, bottom-line results, hanging banners. He's going to have to deal with the media during the tough times in a better light than the way he dealt with it here at Seton Hall. And if he doesn't evolve, I'm concerned that he's going to make it very contentious with their media. For no? one, for one, none of that concerns me. Good for him. Make it very contentious with the local media. But more importantly, Mike, he goes from being a really big fish in a small pond to being a tiny fish in a large pond. Here you started off at a small Catholic school in a little town in New Jersey, and now you are at a, a state university in Maryland. You are at the show in Maryland. You're not going to get away with poking things around. And it already showed. I mean, you already had like three or four social media postings. You had the one with his entire family. You had the one coming off the plane. I mean, you're not going to be able to get away with this gruff Kevin Willard attitude anymore. It's over. What he's really going to have to overcome, in my opinion, is the fact that he was not their number one choice. I mean, obviously, they didn't come out and say that in any of their pressers. But, you know, Nate Oates was probably at the top of the list from everything that you read. And then once Nate Oates was no longer in the running, it immediately turned to Andy Enfeld out at USC. And what happened? Extension. You think that he just happened to get an extension right as the rumors were starting to perk up about him moving to the top of Maryland's wish list? At best, Willard was third in their selection choice. So I, I think the fans wanted a big, sexy splash of a name. And Kevin is not a is not going to fit that bill. I think if they didn't get Oates or Enfeld, they would have rather look back to bringing back Gary Williams before they brought in Kevin Willard. Well, Gary's a little old and the, the I understand Gary's that. a little long in the tooth, Mike. I don't think Gary's coming yeah, but, back. But people would line up to bring PJ back in a heartbeat now for us. Come and stop I it. I don't understand why people aren't looking at the University of Arkansas and taking a look at what Eric Musselman has done. He does nothing but bring teams to the NCAA tournament. He did it at Nevada. He's done it at Arkansas. This is two straight Elite Eight appearances for the man. And how are you not going to say, leave Arkansas? You're in a state that doesn't have a major highway. 
come to Maryland, please. Look, I, let, let's end the show this week saying this. Um, sometimes life is interesting in the way that things line up from a timing perspective. I don't know if Kevin Willard was the right fit for Maryland. I don't know if he's the perfect fit. I don't know what kind of success he's going to have. But the way the stars aligned, we said that this was probably the job that would fit him most to make a transition to. It was Northeast-based. It was a Power 5 school. It was in kind of that local backyard where his family's from. This was the one job. And it just happened to line up where Mark Turgeon resigns earlier this year. Things at Seton Hall started to get a little bit stale. Other coaches were not available. There wasn't this plethora of opportunity in the coaching ranks. And somehow Kevin Willard found his name at the top of the list. Good for him. $29 million plus million over the course of the next seven years. That is generational changing money for him and his family. I mean, you can't, you can't knock him for taking the opportunity. And sometimes the timing works out for all parties involved. And for Seton Hall, maybe it's a blessing in disguise. Maybe we say thank you. Maybe we say we're grateful. And now, St. Peter's, Tom? <laughs> Stop it, Mike. Into Let the Elite Eight? Of it, baby. Into the Elite Eight? If, they're, if the stars were aligning, God bless from my lips to your his ears. Bring the prodigal son home. Look, St. Peter's wins tonight. And I hate this. How many text messages did I receive with tweets from guys that don't even cover college basketball saying, I think the price just became too expensive for Seton Hall to get Shaheen Holloway. There's no way he's going to go to Seton Hall now. Bigger and better things are out there. Well, guess what, folks? The job landscape for what is available just doesn't line up for Shaw to have other Power 5 schools come knocking on his door. You know, without ruining next week's podcast, Mike, I'm just last saying week was a better opportunity for Shaheen Holloway to get more job offers than it is this week. Last week, the LSU job was still open. The Georgia job was still open. The South Carolina job was still open. The Mizzou job was still open. Right now, these jobs have been filled up. Not many major jobs are left out there. Now, there's always the possibility of people getting fired. Personally, I'm shocked that Pitt hasn't fired Jeff Capel. I'm a little shocked that Butler hasn't gotten rid of Laval Jordan. Yeah, but wait, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. So Shaw's going to choose Pittsburgh or Butler over no, Seton no, no, Hall? No, that's not the Come point. On. I'm talking about job openings in power six conferences i'm not my... saying that they have better opportunities of getting shot but weirder things have happened Mike. Uh, and that's what i'm saying i'm saying the way that things are unfolding the stars just seem aligned hey it's a whole new chapter we don't know what's going to be written we don't know if we're going to continue to build upon the last seven years of success with kevin willard but you feel hopeful you feel positive that what you've seen out of Shaheen and St. Peter's could to a certain extent be translated over back to his alma mater here at Seton Hall. So sometimes you just kind of take a step back and go, you know what? Good, bad, 
indifferent, glad as to how you want to evaluate the Kevin Willard tenure. I think we're just going to sit there and say, thanks for getting us out of the Gonzalez mess. Thank you for some of the positive memories. Thank you for getting us back to relevance. I wish we could have gone higher with you, but thank you for getting us here. And we hope to take that next leap as we move on into the future. And I'm excited about that future. Every time that we've lost a coach in the past, there was uncertainty. You were disgruntled. You didn't know what was next. And it hasn't been announced yet, but I am excited about what's next. I, you know what? We're going to have to wait at least until after Sunday. We're just cool meandering at this point. So I'm just going to cut you off, Mike, and say, go Pirates. Can I say go Peacock Blue? Thanks for joining another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your other favorite listening platforms. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle at Pirates. And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Desiri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Thank <laughs> you.